Hi, I'm Cheryl, and I'm a mom, coach, domestic abuse survivor, and host of the Healthy Mom After Divorce podcast, where I help moms survive their high-conflict divorce and develop safe, healthy, and sustainable co-parenting strategies. I know it feels scary, but with the right tools, mindset, and education, you can do this. It may not be easy, but there is light at the end of that tunnel. So let's take that next step together and get this episode started. Hey, healthy mamas, welcome. My name is Cheryl, and this is the 30th episode of the Healthy Mom After Divorce podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen today and supporting the show. The full transcript for this episode can be found at healthymomafterdivorce.com slash 30. As I talk to more and more people and move through this space, I am reminded of where I was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Back then, I didn't fully understand exactly what domestic abuse was, partly because it wasn't being talked about like it is today. The same is true for our parents and our grandparents and generations before them. What we understand about abuse now used to be couched as a normal part of marriage and to be dealt with between the couple, and there was little to no support for a very long time. We've come a long way in the last few decades, which is really good news, but we have a lot further to go in education so that everyone knows what abuse really looks like in order to protect ourselves and our kids. On today's episode, I am going to go over five common misconceptions about abuse, more specifically domestic abuse within a marriage or a marriage-like relationship. That said, many of these would also apply in other relationships, like parent-child or boss-employee. For simplicity and consistency, I'm going to refer to the abuser as he or him, and the victim as she or her. Although abuse happens across all genders, women are statistically far more likely to suffer abuse at the hands of a man due to patriarchal norms and the prevalence of toxic masculinity. I also want to take a minute here to draw a distinction between true abuse as a way to gain power and control over another versus maladaptive responses that someone has and can present like abuse. There are many times that something sets someone off and they respond in an unregulated and maladaptive way. They yell at a cashier. They fight someone at a bar. They call their spouse a name or throw a book across the room. These are all very poor behaviors that are upsetting and even scary. They are wrong, and that person needs to find alternate ways to express their frustration rather than through aggression and anger. But they aren't abuse in and of themselves. Abuse is when someone, as a pattern of behavior, uses various manipulative tactics to gain and maintain power and control over another. The guy who barks at the cashier for ringing up his groceries wrong may be using abusive language, but he's not abusing the cashier with the goal of gaining power and control over them. An abuser's objective is to strip their victim of autonomy. At its core, it's a human rights crime because every human has the right to freedom and choice. 
in order to gain power and control, an abuser will use many tactics. Yes, sometimes physical, but often it's not. Manipulation, isolation, and gaslighting are very common. This keeps the victim always trying to keep the peace by doing what the abuser wants. The victim may report walking on eggshells all the time. They may drop what they're doing every time their abuser calls or texts. They may hide receipts from purchases they make so they don't, quote, get in trouble. They may stop talking to friends and family because their abuser doesn't like them. They may change what they wear to appease their abuser. They may feel constantly confused because their abuser has a different set of rules for them as they do for themselves. The tricky part can be recognizing what's happening. Don't forget, a victim has been groomed for years. It can be very hard to see if we're being abused. Or even if we do think something isn't right, we're often trying to fix it, aren't we? Looking for that right formula to solve the problem. This is where we run into trouble. So let's get started. Number one, he doesn't hit me, so it's not abuse. I wanted to start with this one because it's one of the most limiting. We think if we aren't being hit, we don't fit into the battered woman stereotype with cuts and bruises, so we dismiss the idea of abuse. Many, many abusers never lay a hand on their victim. Why? Simple. Because they don't have to. They don't have to hit or shove to physically intimidate their victim. They can block their doorways, throw things, punch walls, lock them in rooms, not let their victim leave a space by following them around, just to name a few examples. The goal of these tactics is to instill fear in the victim. The victim is afraid because there is a credible threat of violence. Even then, not every abuser resorts to physical intimidation at all. They can control their victims other ways, like using verbal attacks, yelling, guilt trips, threats to harm themselves, threats to use substances, calling, texting them constantly when their victim is out, monitoring all their purchases. The point here is we need to move away from the idea that abuse is only physical violence. It can be, but it is so much more. Any pattern of behavior with the goal to control another human being is abuse. Number two, he wasn't abusive at the start. Something changed. We just need to figure out what and what we can do to get back to how it was at the beginning. No abusers start relationships with abuse. Think about it. If they started right away with name-calling or guilt trips or monitoring their victims' whereabouts or constantly contacting them or isolating them from their friends and family, do you think their victim would hang around? Highly unlikely. That person would see this stuff and peace out pretty quick. It never starts that way. It usually starts amazing. Victims are groomed, love-bombed, we are shown the person we've been looking for. We are sold a future and a life that is so appealing to us. We are idolized and complimented. We are made to feel so insanely special that we can't think of dating anyone else. Then it starts small. Maybe they start texting us more often, saying that they just miss us so much they can't help it. Then Maybe they tell us that we shouldn't be seeing that friend anymore because they don't trust them. And, you know, they're just looking out for us because they love us so much. 
Then maybe they criticize our outfit for the first time, calling us a terrible name even. But then they apologize quickly, explaining again that they love us so much and want what's best for us. Now, if we try to address these increasing issues with our partner, we're often met with the classic DARVO tactic. I haven't talked about DARVO before, so let's go over what it means. It's a type of gaslighting used to deflect from the abuser's bad behavior and shine the spotlight onto the victim in order to avoid accountability for their actions. DARVO stands for Deny, Attack, and Reverse Victim and Offender. Let's use an example so it makes sense. After getting home from the store and seeing a full laundry basket on the floor, you go to your partner and say, Hey, I thought you were going to do the laundry today while I was out, but I see it's still sitting in the basket. I could really use some help around the house. Can we talk about this? Let's apply DARVO here. First, they deny. I never said I would do the laundry. What are you talking about? Maybe you come back and say, Yes, you did. We talked about it this morning at breakfast, remember? You said you were going to help out today. Then they'll attack. Yeah, well, I don't see you taking care of anything either. Your dishes are still in the sink, so maybe you should be working on that stuff rather than getting on my case. Now, you may try to defend yourself here, but you're likely also in shock. His last step will be to reverse victim and offender. So rather than taking accountability for his actions around not doing what he said he would, he instead paints himself as the victim and you as the offender. It might sound something like this. You know I couldn't sleep last night. I'm exhausted and so stressed about work. You know how hard this is for me. And the first thing you do is walk in the door and start a fight? Unbelievable. At this point, you might defend yourself further, but you maybe even start apologizing to him and comforting him. You're left feeling guilty for causing a fight, utterly confused over how it all digressed so quickly, and you're left with the laundry to do and he's taken no responsibility for his actions and inactions. If this sounds familiar, it's okay. A lot of us have gone through it. So although the relationship starts really good, slowly and over time, the devaluation, isolation, and gaslighting increases, and we become more and more confused as the person we thought we knew is no more. But we remember who they were in the beginning, so we keep trying to get back to that place. But it never comes, because that person never existed. It was a mask, a ruse, a facade. Accepting that realization is so hard, though, because we've built a life, a vision, a future on the basis that we married this person who we thought was real. The point is this. Abusers do not come out of the gate abusing their victim. They are often really, really great at the beginning. The relationship is awesome, but the abuser slowly builds over time. And usually, by the time we realize something is very wrong, we are well entrenched in the relationship. Number three, he isn't abusive because we have lots of good times. This one is sort of related to the last one, but it's more referring to a victim's experience once the relationship is well established. We know something isn't right, but we aren't ready to see it for what it is yet. Because an abuser can put on an amazing show, their victim gets to see glimpses of the person they fell in love with. 
the problem is that person never really existed. An abusive relationship has lots of good times, lots of times where things go well. There's laughter, family time. They're helpful and considerate and loving. This is what makes recognizing abuse so much harder because it creates cognitive dissonance in victims. They have these two conflicting experiences, one where their partner is exactly who they fell in love with, and the other where their partner is controlling, manipulative, untrustworthy, and perhaps violent. An abuser uses this intermittent reinforcement to keep their partner coming back over and over again. There have been many studies on this phenomenon. It's the same tactic that works at slot machines. Intermittent reinforcement keeps people sitting at those machines, pulling the arm over and over again. Sometimes it pays off so they get that rush, that excitement, that feeling that they want. So they stay put and keep pulling, hoping for it to happen again. And stopping is so hard because you think, maybe this time I'll win. This is what happens with an abuser. Victims stay thinking, maybe today will be better. Maybe once they get that promotion, it'll be better. Maybe once the kids are older, it'll get better. Maybe if I just do all the housework, they'll be less stressed and it'll get better. The message here is none of that matters. It won't ever be better because those aren't the causes of his abuse. It's about his deeply ingrained, faulty belief system rooted in superiority and entitlement. And the only way for him to possibly have a chance to change is through a lot of work in a specialized abuse program. And that's not the same as an anger management program or addiction programs like AA. And although change is possible, most abusers never do. Their core belief that they're justified in all their abusive behaviors is a big part of what prevents them from getting the help they need. Number four, he's only abusive when he drinks. It's the alcohol that causes it. So once he's sober, he'll stop. Some other examples like this would be, he just loses control. He doesn't have good anger management skills. Or his ex-wife really screwed him over. She was so cruel to him. That's why he has a hard time with women. Or maybe his dad was really nasty to him when he was a kid. That's why he thinks it's okay to mistreat women. The things that have happened to people in the past certainly affect how they develop and behave. Being under the influence of drugs or alcohol definitely can affect how someone behaves as well. But they don't cause abuse. If alcohol was the cause, wouldn't every person that ever got drunk be abusive? I feel like if that was the case, alcohol would have been banned a long time ago. And if previous partner cruelty and abuse was the cause, wouldn't there be a lot more women abusers? Women are far more likely to be subjected to abuse than men, especially in intimate partner relationships. Here's a list of things that do not cause someone to abuse another person. Alcohol, drugs, being the victim of abuse as a child, his last partner and how she treated him, his anger, his lack of control, immaturity, poor social skills, poor coping mechanisms, poor communication, or anything else in that category. Now, how do we know these things don't cause someone to abuse someone else? Because many, many people have the same challenges, and the majority of them do not go on to abuse other people. 
That isn't to say we don't offer compassion or understanding to someone who has had terrible things happen to them. But the second they use these things as an excuse to mistreat you, you can no longer trust them. And to touch on the excuse of, I just lose control sometimes, that we hear time and time again from abusers, if that was the case, and they just lost total control, wouldn't they abuse their partner anywhere and everywhere? At the grocery store, at family parties, in the middle of the sidewalk in front of their house? Sure, some of them might, but most abusers do it only when they're alone with their victim and can shut it off really quick if someone comes to the door or around the corner. I don't know about you, but that sounds like being in control to me. Now, this is the perfect spot for me to give you a book recommendation. Go read Lundy Bancroft's book called Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. I think I went through an entire pad of post-it notes reading this book. He has so much insight into how controlling men function and why they do what they do. I'd love to share this quote from his book. Bancroft says, The abusive man's high entitlement leads him to have unfair and unreasonable expectations so that the relationship revolves around his demands. His attitude is, you owe me. That's the thing. That's their mindset in everything. You owe me. All right, last on my list, number five. He really doesn't seem like the type. Now, this one is not only for the victim, but also very much for the people around her. None of them, quote, seem like the type. Whatever this image is society has in their minds about what an abuser looks like, it needs to be erased and replaced with a blank. What is an abuser supposed to look like anyways? And similarly, what is a victim supposed to look like? If abusers were easy to spot, wouldn't we all spot them and avoid them right off the bat? Frankly, I think it's one of the most ridiculous things I hear. They look like everyone else. They are professionals, laborers, public servants, pastors, politicians, therapists, teachers, bus drivers, CEOs, custodians, everything. They are from all ethnic and racial backgrounds. They're any age. And honestly, a lot of the time, the more successful and smart they are, the more resources they have, and the more sophisticated they can be with their abuse. It can make them better at fooling the world and keeping the false persona because, quote, they don't seem like an abuser. I am guessing many of my listeners are out of their relationship and are trying to get through their divorce and co-parent with a high-conflict person. But I know that many of these people still aren't sure if they were even being abused in their relationship. Even if you're out, I think it's very important to understand what you went through so you can protect yourself post-separation and know what to look for in the future to avoid getting into a similar situation. I'm going to end with another Bancroft quote. He gives a list called, How can I tell if a man I'm seeing will become abusive? Here are the things he lists to watch out for. He speaks disrespectfully about his former partners. He is disrespectful toward you. He does favors for you that you don't want or puts on such a show of generosity that it makes you uncomfortable. He is controlling 
He is possessive. Nothing is ever his fault. He is self-centered. He abuses drugs or alcohol. He pressures you for sex. He gets serious too quickly about the relationship. He intimidates you when he's angry. He has double standards. He has negative attitudes toward women. He treats you differently around other people. He appears to be attracted to vulnerability. Now, Bancroft points out that no single one of these things will mean someone will be an abuser. But these are definitely the things to pay attention to and set boundaries very early about what is okay and not okay. If they don't respect those boundaries, that's all the information you need to get out now. If you're struggling through your divorce and feel like you're pulled in a thousand different directions, I can help. Reach out and book a complimentary 45-minute discovery call with me and we can talk about where you're at, what you're dealing with, and how you can get through this chapter and onto the rest of your life with your health, sanity, and family intact. It's time to focus on what you can control. Start to build a life for you and your kids that you all can be proud of and take control of your health because healthy, happy moms raise healthy, happy kids. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review. And if you like what you heard, share this episode with other moms. Don't forget to follow me on social media. And if you want to learn more about me and what else I have to offer, head over to HealthyMomAfterDivorce.com. And while you're there, why not grab your copy of my free guide, Take Your Power Back, Four Ways to Feel in Control Through Your High Conflict Divorce. One foot in front of the other, Healthy Mama. You got this. I promise.